I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. What'd you miss this week? I'm Scarlett Boom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, instead of from farm to table, we took a look at the burgeoning from lab to table food industry. Petri dish grown food could be coming to a plate near you. While Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger have found success serving up meat substitutes, Memphis Meats is taking a different approach. The company develops real meat by sourcing and growing it from animal cells. Without the need to feed, breed, and slaughter actual animals, Memphis Meats says the process gives them full autonomy to ensure quality and nutrition, all while cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions. The California-based company has earned some famous fans with backing from Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Atomic VC, and most recently, Tyson. So we sat down with co-founder and CEO Uma Valetti to hear what his company is all about. Memphis Meats is a food company that's growing meat, poultry, seafood directly from animal cells. We take uh, high quality animal cells from the, the animals that are typically on the table as meat or poultry and we identify the cells that can renew themselves and they are there in the meat because cells continue to renew and double naturally. And what we do is really identify the high quality cells that will make the cut into producing delicious meat. So we, we isolate the cells whether it's cows, pigs, or chickens, or ducks. And then we put them in a, in, a, in a clean, controlled environment where we feed them essential nutrients. And these are very familiar to what uh, you know, a baby calf would eat, like, uh, like uh, vitamins, amino acids, fatty acids, minerals, oxygen, sugars. And within a uh, matter of three to six weeks, we get delicious meat that's harvested and cooked just like you would handle meat. And the, the entire process, the efficiency of it, of getting from the first cell to meat being harvested, it's just uh, amazing. And uh, we've done a lot of products. We've done beef, we've done chicken, we've done duck, and a number of other species. Uma, who do you see as your likely customer? Um, obviously, with something like Beyond Meats, a lot of it is targeted people who do eat traditional meat and maybe want to cut back a little bit or incorporate some meatless alternatives into their, into their food. What you're serving is actual meat or something uh, chemically the same as uh, traditional meat. So do you see selling to existing meat eaters or perhaps existing vegetarians and vegans who want to eat meat but are concerned about the uh, environmental or animal suffering aspects? I think you put this really well. This is real meat directly from animal cells and people who've loved eating meat for thousands of years immediately recognize this as meat. And uh, in fact, uh, cell-based meat is called the holy grail of the food industry because it's something that is part of our cultures, whether you grow up in India, China, or the US, or anywhere in the world. And we celebrate this tradition of growing uh, and, and eating meat at almost every gathering that we have. And when we think of our potential customers, we see a very high um, uh, interest from people that are, let's say, uh, 55 or under, millennials and Gen Zs, but 
that interest is about 60 to 70 percent anytime someone asks them a question are you ready to eat cell-based meats but it's very interesting that even in those that are over 55 the interest is 50 plus percent and that's something we were really surprised seeing but it actually makes sense because this is meat and when people taste it that's when the magic happens and one little point here is it's also blurring the definitions of who is a vegetarian or uh, vegan right. because if someone is let's say a vegetarian for environmental or ethical reasons well here is meat where you can produce it by detaching meat production from slaughter for the first time ever so Oma, I, this is very you know scientifically fascinating but there's a customer base out there that's probably not going to be as sophisticated or maybe even care about some of the science behind it they're just going to hear lab-grown meat cell-based meat and that may turn them off. We've seen the hysteria over GMOs and other things. How do you reach out to those people? Uh, how do you sell this to those type of people who are going to be skeptical of the science rather than fascinated by it? Yeah, so this is an important thing we recognized even before we started the company. Uh, we started the company about three years ago. And you know, if you just think about it three years back in 2016 or 2015, this was still thought of as science fiction. And one of the things we thought of as a startup is not to be in the stealth mode because almost every startup would love to start in a stealth mode and introduce their product and say, hey, here it is. But we recognize that this is new and for some people it could be weird and that's why we started talking about it really early. And, and, and in order for us to demystify this, uh, this to like anyone who thinks about cell-based meat or clean meats or other names that are very popular is they have to experience this. They have to come and see it being cooked, smell it in front of them, and then taste it. I think our goal as a company is to really get out there and educate consumers as quickly as possible, uh, why, we do it, why we do this, how we can do it, and also what we're doing. And so far, the reception we've gotten has been tremendous when we introduced the beef meat ball. And subsequent to that, we started saying we could also do it with multiple species. So we picked uh, two of the most popular species in the wall. So for, for example, chicken most popular in the US and we did southern fried chicken mm. and we started showing the fibers mm. when someone cuts into it and then we picked duck because we wanted to show that this actually is very relevant globally and more duck is eaten in China than the rest of the world combined and we started showing duck breast and how it could grill and yeah. you could get the experience of that you're saying people have got to taste it well, when can we I mean at the moment this is still in stealth mode as you say but being publicly debated when's it coming the shops well Number one, it's not in the stealth mode. From the day we started the company, we've been talking about it everywhere. In fact, all our tastings, we've invited reporters, and in fact, reporters on the Wall Street Journal had sent their own tasters because we wanted people to taste it and immediately share their experience with everyone they love, their family and friends. And that's part of the reason why people are recognizing the potential of this. And, and like uh, Romain said, this is not for everyone right away because they've got to get comfortable with it. They've got to see their peers and friends and family eat it. And our goal is to get into the market as quickly as possible. In the last three years, our entire focus was to start showing we can do it with very uh, desirable species now let's let run this down the cost curve and start scaling production and we're in the, in the in the process now of building a pilot plant and starting to scale production and we, we want to get to market as soon as possible we haven't pinned an exact date for announcing that but I would say it's in the near future in the next let me stop there in the near future <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the philosophy and the sort of the way you're going to market this because we live in a time in which there's a lot of skepticism towards big tech and algorithms and not really being able to see where things come from. And so whether it's you guys or Beyond Meat, why should we feel comfortable just with the idea of a new generation of foods that are cooked up in a lab that we really don't have any transparency into? 
that's the exact reason why I think this is going to be adopted really well because of the transparency we're showing from day one. We're talking mm -hmm. about the consumer really cares about where the food comes from and that's something that is a very clear trend in the last few years and we want it's pretty clear that consumers want to feel excited about the process by which food gets there and not just merely tolerate a system in place. And I'd say the current system of uh, raising 70 billion yeah. animals, we're merely tolerating it. And if you're given the option of producing meat directly without raising or slaughtering an animal, and someone can experience that, that's amazing. Caroline sat down with Nokia CEO Rajiv Suri at Bloomberg's Sooner Than You Think conference in London to talk about the race for 5G. There were some concerns that Nokia had been behind the curve compared with the other key players, Huawei and Ericsson, and were not deploying the technology as quickly as those competitors. But the Nokia CEO told Caroline why it was still winning contracts quite handsomely, despite delivery delays. Yes, it is, because we, we said that, you know, we have a few weeks of, of delays in the context of a 15, 20-year 5G cycle, that's not really much. And so when it comes, therefore, to the customers you're announcing, 42, I think, is the latest. Yes. Yeah. Are these customers deploying 5G right here, right now? Are you able to book revenue right here, right now? These are customers that are deploying right here, right now, indeed, uh, 42 around the world. And uh, we, we expect to start recognizing revenue soon. And talk to us about where the opportunities lie. It's not only, of course, in public networks. It's not only the consumer who's going to be using 5G, yeah. much faster speeds when you're talking to people or using video, but notably it's industrial use cases, autos, energy companies. How much are you seeing a demand from private networks to be built? What sort of future is that? Significant, because we see the big opportunities in manufacturing, in logistics, supply chains, utilities, uh, mining, all kinds of energy companies, water, uh, wind farms, you name it, so transportation. Uh, so I think industrial IoT on the basis of private campus networks will be fairly significant. And from a geographical perspective, we're sat here in the UK announcing, clearly seeing a new UK customer bringing it forward. But where in geographical terms are you seeing 5G grabbing the most attention and people signing the most contracts? US, Korea, Japan, Europe. Okay, so in that sort of lineup. And yeah. what's interesting about the supplier base is, well, it's very consolidated. When you look at the players, it's yourself, it's Huawei, and it's Ericsson. Yeah. Now, in terms of a three-horse race, Huawei is almost a once-in-a-generation moment where Ericsson and Nokia can start to reclaim back some of that market share taken by the Chinese. Are you seeing that? We already know you've won TDC, you've already won SoftBank. Will there be more? Well, we, we compete quite favorably with Huawei, with or without the current security concerns, right? Mm. We've, we've uh, taken some 23 contracts with them in radio in just the last two years. You know, we've, we've, we win two-thirds of the time against our Nordic competitor uh, compared to one-third of the time that they uh, swap us out. So we win quite handsomely. Our strength is that we have the end-to-end -end portfolio, and we can provide this at scale in every geography of the world, bar none. Plus, we have a strong enterprise channel purpose-built for industrial IoT, and we've got like a 1,000 enterprise customers growing at about 150, 200 every year. So how price-elastic or inelastic, therefore, are your client base? Because many have felt that Huawei took so much market share because they were cheaper. Mm. Is that something you've been forced to do and look at compressing your margins, looking at offering cheaper elements, or is it that people need the full end-to-end, -end, as you say? 
End-to-end -end is a big strength of ours. I mean, we've, we had something like 35% of our pipeline a year ago was end-to-end, -end. now it's about 49%. Our order intake is strong on end-to-end. -end. Uh, the 42 commercial 5G deals we talked about, half of them have components that are beyond just 5G radio. So end-to-end -end is going to be way more important in 5G than it has been in 4G. And when we talk about industrial IoT, these enterprise customers actually buy systems. Mm. If they want a smart grid modernization solution, they don't care you know, whether it's going to be routing from some other player or optics from some other and then radio from you. They want to buy the system. The RFQ is a complete RFQ. So when it gets to the enterprise, the end-to-end -end is a no-brainer. In the uh, service provider space, it's increasingly becoming a relevant strategic uh, decision point. What's also a strategic decision point is whether you have Huawei in any way integrated in your system as a country, as a, as a telecoms provider. Is the issues we're seeing, whether it might be the US-China trade war or specifically the blacklisting of Huawei, the targeting of Huawei, is that a net positive or a, net, or a negative for your business? I think it's early to call it anyway. I just say that, yes, there's some uncertainty uh, and some unpredictability as to how this will unfold. What we have done is, on our part, we've been very thoughtful about if you are a customer that wants to swap out your existing 4G player, how are you going to deal with it? You know, and we've come up with four alternatives whereby you don't have to delay your rollout. Um, ah. and, and so we're focused on just being there for our customers when they need us. Security concerns or not. So the arguments made by perhaps German player Deutsche Telekom that they're already in bed with Huawei and it would delay, delay their rollout of 5G, you think is not correct? I don't think on a European level that there will be any delays based on this situation with regard to security concerns. Uh, I think, if any, there might be delays on account of you know, spectrum not being available or, or you know, the economics make, not making sense for a particular operator. But we have four technical solutions should you want to swap out your existing base. Uh, and you know, they're all doable. They all have pros and cons, but they're doable. What about the cons that potentially some have paid lip service to, that through the US-China trade tensions, we will see sort of two different technology focuses ending up being built, two ways of delivering 5G that will be incompatible in some way. Do you think that that's a risk in the no. way that telecoms... No. No. I don't think that's a risk, no. What is the key risk when it comes to security, when it comes to providers such as... Is, is really a relevant, realistic risk to have Huawei as a provider, do you think? Uh, the concern that people are expressing is that, you know, it's going to be critical national infrastructure, so the, the, the focus on security will be there no matter what. It has to be there. And the second is that where is the intelligence in the network? Is it in the core network? Is it at the edge? Is it throughout the network? And basically it's going to be throughout the network because, you know, there's no one particular place where intelligence sits. And, of course, the third thing is this is going to be used for industrial networks. So hence you get all this talk about, you know, worries around security. And I think that makes sense. You know, one has to, it is going to be critical national infrastructure. You're going to have industrial 5G networks used for a lot of industries as well as for carriers that will also use network slicing to deploy it for industrial applications. So that concern is valid. And so I think security cannot be an afterthought. You know, that's why we at Nokia focus on design for security in our products. It's a non-negotiable. It is not an afterthought. It's right at the outset. And, um, you know, whether or not there'll be 
concerns around this in other countries, we'll see. It's too early to tell if this is an opportunity or a risk. Uh, I can say that there's some unpredictability and uncertainty, but overall, you know, we'll be there for our customers when they need us, and we'll have multiple technology alternatives. What about those that see you as a customer? You do have suppliers in China. Is this something you're having to change? You're having to reroute your own supply chains to keep your customers then happy that you're the most secure provider out there? Fortunately, we have a global supply chain. And, you know, we're able to migrate, mitigate some of the near-term risks, whether they be trade concerns or, or security concerns and, and, and so on. So I think, yes, we have some near-term headwind uh, from, you know, cost related to the trade wars uh, and the tariffs coming into force, but none that we can't manage in the scheme of things. And none that would put your full-year targets at risk? None that would put our full-year targets at risk. And as a business leader, is it geopolitical risk? Is it trade tensions that keep you up at nine at the moment? What is the number one thing that you have to navigate and how difficult is that? I mean, fortunately, the investment in 5G is counter-cyclical, so to speak. Mm. So I think it's, even if there were a macro downturn, this, this is something that you will invest in. So we are an attractive sector no matter what, because 5G, you, you absolutely have to invest in. Countries will compete on investing in 5G. So I, I see 5G as a big cycle, a long cycle, a deeper cycle than 4G or 3G in the past, uh, peaking not before about 10 years and going to be there for 15, 20 years. And when will Nokia have the dominant market share? Nokia is winning big in 5G. 42 commercial customers, I could not, I could not have dreamed of a better start. This is a great start for Nokia and 5G. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Workplace messaging company Slack is gearing up for a direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange next Thursday. And earlier this week, it gave investors some more information about its finances. The San Francisco-based startup announced first quarter revenue of $134.8 million and forecast sales of $600 million this year. But that included forecasts of higher-than-usual losses in the second quarter, the period in which Slack is expected to go public. So we broke down what the numbers mean with Rhett Wallace, CEO of Triton Research. It's an independent financial data and intelligence firm. And Rhett told us why Slack is looking a lot like DocuSign and Dropbox. If you were going to be cynical, you would say, congratulations, you reinvented AOL Instant Messenger. Um, but you guys know, just from the platform you sit on, as far as Bloomberg is concerned, that messaging among people that work together right. is actually really valuable. And you could say that that's part of what stitches your network together. Right. And it's very, very sticky. And also, if this was AOL Instant Messenger, that it would, you know, we wouldn't be here for the Slack direct listing. It would be AOL and some messenger would be carved out of AOL. So obviously they have some special soft there. I think as far as comps are concerned, this company looks a lot to us like DocuSign and Dropbox, mm. both of which went public in the last year. I think, you know, DocuSign had about the same revenue base, growing a little slower. Dropbox had about double the revenue base, growing a little slower. Mm -hmm. But for comps also for direct listings, we're kind of looking at Spotify, which was 10 times bigger. So this fits into neither bucket because they're not going public, right, like DocuSign and Dropbox did, but they are doing a direct listing like Spotify did, so you don't really have a perfect analogy, which creates some excitement or at least some drama about what might happen. 
What do you think, Rhett, therefore, is how investors should be digesting this as a positive thing to be buying into or a negative? Once again, it's a loss-making company. They seem to be growing at great guns, talking about $600 million in sales this year as their latest mm -hmm. financial disclosure just moments ago. But yep. what do you make of the fact that they're not looking to raise new money and what that means in terms of an investment? Sure. Well, we joke about these direct listings in the office. We say that, you know, going public without raising money is a little bit like losing your virginity without the sex. And in the case of of DocuSign and Dropbox, they raised about half a billion dollars each. Now, this company already has $800 million of capital on the balance sheet, so they don't really need the money the way the others might have. But as far as the catalyst to invest, I think there are a couple of things. The first is, you know, this company still is making losses in a way that DocuSign and Dropbox were not. They had already turned the corner into making profits. I think the other thing you could say is, you know, without a primary offering, an underwritten offering that is usually something that's subject to the institutional discount, there might not be as much of a catalyst for investors to decide that they want to invest right now. It's more possible that you could take a wait and see, especially when you look at the stock price charts over the last year for Dropbox and for Spotify. What was your catalyst, right? Yeah. Take your time. Well, so one thing about this, so I mean, it does seem, Slack does seem like a viable long-term mm -hmm. business, but one thing in their filing back in April, the direct listing filing, they specifically talked about the potential for competition or the existing mm -hmm. competition, Microsoft, Facebook, sure. Cisco, All the scary Alphabet. Names, so right? I wonder, I mean, I feel like some of those companies can easily replicate, if they haven't mm -hmm. already, what Slack does. Mm -hmm. What's Slack's buffer? Well, so this is, this is why we thought the comparison to both yeah. DocuSign and Dropbox is really good. Like, you know, cloud storage, like everyone kind of does that. Yeah. But the, the Dropbox brand seems to be, you know, pretty <clears throat> sticky. DocuSign, again, e-signing documents. You know, doesn't Adobe do that? Like, lots of other people do that. What Slack has done is sort of created an awareness of their brand mm -hmm. that seems to help them get adoption in a very viral way, even though they now are hiring enterprise salespeople to go out and get enterprise accounts. People take Slack with them because, you know, maybe they don't want to be working, but while they're working, they like to use Slack. So you're talking about how the company still loses a lot of money, like many IPOs these days. Like many. But with, mm -hmm. you know, an Uber or a Lyft, there are real questions about profitability, period, and whether the business model itself at some point will totally. get profitable. When you look at Slack, do you see a path to profitability? Because if they're losing a lot of money just because the investment opportunities are still so great, mm -hmm. then that, in theory, is not a big problem. Yeah, I think also just the, you know, the ratio of losses is much less scary than if you're looking at a company like Lyft, you know, right. that's got like a 50% EBITDA loss margin, yeah. something like that. So I think that the direction, and the direction, by the way, in the new quarter, like, isn't great. You know, they used, they had been losing about $150 million a year year, kind of rain or shine. That looks like it's trending, you know, to a bigger number. But again, with 800 million on the balance sheet, and again, the ratios and the comps would tell you, like, look, a company like this should be able to be profitable without growing revenue as much as they already are. Remind me what the ownership structure looks like here in terms of the control, because we've seen some companies go public, have Snap being one of them, where an awful lot of control is maintained by the CEOs, and that's what's been created by the likes of Alphabet and Facebook as well. Sure. So this one is, you know, a structure that would look very familiar in the sense that you have Series B stock that has 10 votes for every Series A share. What the document says is that owners of Series B can convert into Series A if they would like to list their shares for sale. So they basically said you can give up your votes and get liquidity or you can keep your votes and not be liquid, but they've made it a choice for the investors who are not Stuart Butterfield and the other you know, insiders who obviously will hold on to very large controlling stakes here. And we finished up with another interview from the Bloomberg Sooner Than You Think conference in London. Caroline sat down with Jeremy Wright, the UK Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. 
and began by asking why the UK government is doubling down on its investment in artificial intelligence. Well, look, I think London Tech Week A is very exciting, as you say, but it's also giving us a chance to do two things. First of all, to talk about the wonderful things that UK Tech is achieving, and there's a long list. But it also gives technology the chance to come together and talk to us. And one of the things that's very clearly said to us is that their concern is around getting access to the right talent. It's partly about immigration. It's also about skills. So what we've said is that we'll spend £18.5 million on getting some of those people who are at the moment studying other things in other fields to transfer across into artificial intelligence so that we can start to inject some new talent into this area and start to feed some of these very successful companies and drive some good new ideas. 18.5 million, I think it is, is to boost the AI tech roles. How do you get the message out to those who might be converting into a role of AI that might not know about it? Well, I think the message that AI is exciting, that it is expanding, is getting out there. And I think London Tech Week helps us to do that. So I think people are expressing an interest. And now what we've got to do is match the right people to the right positions. There are huge numbers of new opportunities out there. We've got to get people into those new opportunities. It's also important to do something else, though, which is to make sure that from government's point of view, we're helping to develop the ethical framework that go alongside these technological developments. Because artificial intelligence is very exciting, but for many people it's quite scary too. And I think we have to make sure people are reassured that, for example, the data that they own and that they will supply, which will drive these artificial intelligence developments, will be properly protected and looked after. So some of these ethical frameworks that go alongside artificial intelligence are really important too, and we need to do that as well. Talking of ethics, there's also the talk of overseeing social media, its role, its relevance, the the performance it plays in monitoring itself. It's a big talking point on Capitol Hill in the US at the moment. Is this still front of mind for the UK government at the moment? Very much so. And what we're doing is world leading. There is a gap at the moment, and I think people are conscious of it, both in the tech sector and elsewhere. If you're on broadcast media, as you and I are now, and you behave badly, then there are controls to that bad behavior. There's a regulatory structure. Same is true in print media. Same is true out on the street. It's not true in the same way online. And as we live more and more of our lives online, and more and more of very similar content is held online as it is held in, for example, broadcast media, I think that gap becomes harder and harder to defend. So self-regulation must end, and we must replace that with a better structure. Now, I think that's accepted by the industry, and we're working with them to make sure that whatever we design, and it will be our decision how to design it, of course, but whatever we design, they will be able to comply with and will be able to make their consumers safer. In the end, that's what really matters, making sure that people who use the internet can be as safe as they can possibly be made to be. And there's a big job of work to be done on that. So you're thinking about the consumer, you're thinking about those growing businesses, access to talent, access to capital, but also access to infrastructure. How are you ensuring, particularly with the furor surrounding Huawei at the moment, a big provider of telecoms technology in the UK, how are you ensuring that we can be at the forefront of the 5G rollout when there's a question about the role that Huawei might play? Yes, well as you say, it's important that we do have good quality equipment, it's important that we're in the forefront of the 5G revolution, we want to do that. What's just as important, if not more so, is that we have a safe and secure telecoms infrastructure. So what we're doing isn't focused on Huawei, it's not even just focused on China. I'm looking in my department at a way in which we can develop a system for the whole telecom supply chain that makes sure that whoever supplies us the equipment, they meet our requirements on safety and security. That's what we're working on and we'll bring those proposals forward as soon as we can. 
will the National Security Council come to an end to its review in terms of providing? Well, I can't say exactly when the decisions will be made. And, of course, you'll be conscious of the fact that the Americans have made decisions very recently that we need to take into account, which in a hugely interconnected telecoms world will have an impact on Huawei and on other suppliers of telecoms equipment. We need to work through the consequences of that before we make a decision, but we'll do that as soon as we can. How difficult does it make it, the US decision to blacklist Huawei? Well, I think, as I said, this is a hugely interconnected world, so you can't pretend that the decisions made in other parts of the world don't have a bearing. If components from America go into componentry which is supplied by Huawei, into the UK telecom system, then all of these things interact. So we've got to work through all the implications of these decisions, understand them, and then make our own decision. It's for us to decide what's best for the UK, but we have to accept the reality, which is that this is a hugely interconnected world. Your background of a lawyer coming into play in a big way, I'm sure. Jeremy, talk to us about, therefore, the growth that we're still seeing in London, outside of London as well. The UK has really been focusing on technology growth. How much of a distraction do you think Brexit has been and a concern to those building businesses? Well, look, two things. I mean, first of all, you're right. It's growth that's happening across the UK, and that's very pleasing. We're seeing huge growth in places like Manchester. If you look at the report that came out today, the cities that are being talked about in the creation of these job opportunities are Oxford, Cambridge, Reading, Newcastle, and Belfast. So they're they're all across the country. In relation to Brexit, people are concerned that when we leave the European Union, If you're in the tech sector, you'll still have access to the talent you want to bring in. And some of that talent comes from the European Union. But what will happen, of course, as we leave the European Union is we will be able to design our own immigration system. And we should do that, if we're sensible, and I hope we will be, in a way that makes sure we bring in the people we need and want. So what we're saying to the tech sector is, look, we've got this opportunity to design from almost a blank sheet of paper the immigration system that we want. Come and help us design it. Come and tell us what it is you want to see in our immigration system that will enable you to continue to access that talent. We've already made available routes of access for those who are talented in the tech sector, whether they're innovative visas, startup visas, and other things. So we've already shown, I hope, that we are welcoming that kind of talent, and we will continue to do so. Brexit is a distraction. I'm going to distract you some more on it. What about the leadership race in the Conservative Party. Are you backing anyone at the moment? Yes, so I will be backing Sajid Javid. I think there are some good candidates in the race. But my judgment is that what you really want in the next leader of the Conservative Party and the next Prime Minister is three things. First of all, they've got to have an imaginative solution to the Brexit impasse we're in. Second of all, just as importantly though, you must have the capacity to run the government. You must have the managerial ability to do that. Sajid has run major departments of government. He has experience in the business sector too. I think he has that. And thirdly, you also need to have a vision of what new we can say to the electorate about Conservative government at the next election. I think this party needs to reinvigorate itself. It needs to revitalise itself. It needs to look and feel different to the electorate when it next puts its case to them. And I think Sajid can do all of those three things. That's why I'm supporting him. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly
directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.